Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We begin with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Minister, thank you for coming on. Great to be on the show. Happy Family Day. Thank you. Same to you. And I appreciate you doing it. And I also uh, grateful to you for taking calls from the listeners. So what I'm going to do right now is read the phone lines out right now. And if people want to phone in, if you have a comment or a question about the healthcare system in British Columbia, how it's working for you and your family, this is your opportunity to talk to the minister. So let's, let's do that right now. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. So, Minister, while we get some calls coming in here, let me ask you about the current state of the the healthcare system in British Columbia. Like, are you satisfied with the system as it is right now? Because we've talked a lot here on the show about wait lists, the doctor shortage, emergency rooms being shut down, hours being scaled back. I mean, there are lots of challenges and problems. How do you, how do you characterize it? Well, first of all, I think our healthcare teams, our healthcare workers have done an exceptional job in the pandemic. This is no small thing. It continues. We're three years into it. And I think British Columbia, that means our healthcare system, our healthcare workers, and our people, I think, did one of the best jobs in the world. And that's, uh, that shows us how important our healthcare system can be. It meant that we kept schools open more than most other jurisdictions. It meant that people got uh, the best care in very difficult circumstances. And look, there's lots of people out there who also suffered a lot during the COVID-19 pandemic. We acknowledge that as well. It's just that BC did very well relative to everyone else. There are very significant challenges facing the system uh, coming out of the pandemic. Some people delayed getting uh, care. For example, we saw a decline in the first year of the pandemic in tests, so that has gone way up. And problems that existed before, uh, you know, when I became Minister of Health, about 900,000 people without a family doctor. We made a little bit of progress with the pandemic, still about 900,000, and we've got to do much better. So they want us to take action on that. You saw the agreement with doctors, which is historic, and in the last three weeks has transformed primary care already in the way that we deal with doctors. Uh, Adding medical school spaces, because we need to do that as well. We've got to train our share of doctors in this world increase, improve the pathways to internationally educated doctors. In other words, uh, uh, train and bring in the healthcare workers but, that are going to keep the system going. Okay, but when you talk about a backlog of people waiting for tests, for example, I mean, that waiting a delay for a test is one thing. What about waiting for care for, like, a critical illness like cancer? So let me play a clip here for you. Dr. Chris Hogue from the Specialists of BC, he was on an earlier show, and here he is talking about a, a months-long wait for a cancer patient. And I'll get your thoughts. Have a listen. I had a patient in my office yesterday who I referred a month ago to an oncologist. And he came in to, to touch base and make sure things were moving along. And he got an appointment, but it's still two months down the line. That's a three-month wait for an oncologist, for a patient that I've already identified has a significant cancer and, and needs to be seen. That's not right. Minister, what do you say to him and anyone else who's on a wait list with cancer right now? I I totally agree. First of all, we're doing more such tests than ever before, but there's significant demand, and there's only way to, to one way to deal with that, and that's to meet the demand, and that's particularly true in cancer. We need we're going to have twice as many people over 75, Mike, in the next 10 years. That number has grown dramatically in the last five years. That means more what we call age-related cancer, more cancer in, in yeah. our system because people are living longer, especially living longer after 65. 
the only way to respond to that is to uh, to recruit more oncologists. That's what we uh, sought to do in the budget last year, and we've added positions, and that's what we've got to continue to do to meet that demand because it's critical. Anyone who gets a cancer diagnosis, the anxiety level is immediately high regardless of the cancer and regardless of the diagnosis. So I agree with Dr. Hogue that quick response is important, and that's uh, what we're seeking to do. Okay, the phone lines are open, 604-280-9898. If you have a question for BC's health minister, how is the system working for you and your family, please call right now, 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Steve in Port Moody. Hi, Steve, go ahead. Oh, hi, I'm a retired family doctor, retired at the end of 2021. Um after 42 years as a family doc in BC. So I worked in the 1980s when the system worked really well and I lived through the changes. So I really just want to point out where all this stuff started. I don't always hear people talking about uh, how how we got into trouble, but most of the problems began in the 1990s. Um, There were reports that said there were too many doctors in, in Canada. So all medical schools were told to cut back on enrollment. We now know that's a problem and governments are trying to address that. The other thing that happened in the 1990s was the federal government drastically reduced transfer payments. We're sort of getting that addressed. But the third thing that made a significant difference was reducing the number of hospital beds per population. And I think back in the 80s, we had five beds per 100,000 population, and now we're probably less than three, maybe even close to two. Well, let's get the minister, <laughs> minister's response to all that. Go ahead, Minister. Well, first of all, thanks to Steve for his 42 years, which is a pretty significant achievement. I know he gave a lot of care to a lot of people. I think BC does have a relatively lower share of acute care beds per capita compared to other jurisdictions. Steve is correct on that. That's why we're building a second hospital in Surrey. And after a 16-year delay under the previous government, rebuilding St. Paul's Hospital with more beds. That's in this region and Burnaby and Richmond and Lionsgate and Terrace and all the long list that that you know, uh, Mike, this is the most extensive capital build we've uh, ever had to address some of those issues and also to make our healthcare system more efficient because our 1960s hospitals have served us well, but we're in 2023 now. We need to be better. I was just going to say, Minister, was he correct when he said in the 1990s they, they, they felt there was a surplus of doctors and so that's part of well, the problem? They didn't train enough? Go ahead. I think, I think it's a long time ago since the 1990s. We've added, for example, 600 family doctors in the last number of years. But demand, you know, since I've been Minister of Health, there's 600 more family doctors. But a lot of them weren't working in the community. And so one of the reasons why we've changed from the fee-for-service model, we were the last in Canada really to stay massively into the fee-for-service model, was working with doctors. We needed a better way of doing it so that the complexity of patients was reflected, and that happened, and that we were paying family doctors equivalent to what we were paying family doctors who work in other jobs in healthcare, for example, in hospitals. So on that point, I think that's a a very, very important point as well. You've got to give priority to the work. And thirdly, it's not just doctors. And I think everybody recognizes that, including Steve, that... You know, we we need to train out, and that's why we have more medical, more registered nursing spaces, new pathways for internationally educated nurses and health sciences professionals and others. We got to build out teams in healthcare in this time, and that's what we're doing. So, okay. I appreciate Steve's comments, 
uh, especially around uh, around those issues. I think that we uh, need to have a healthcare system that meets the needs, not of the last 30 years, but of the next 20 years. And that's why we have the Health Human Resources Plan we have. Uh, BC Health Minister Adrian Dix is my guest on our BC Family Day show. Minister, just before we take some more calls here, let me quickly get your response on this whole issue around the between you and the BC Liberals on the bureaucracy in the healthcare system. So the Liberals keep saying, and you keep saying it's not true, that the healthcare system has become exploded to 64 vice presidents in the healthcare system. And I know you've got a different point of view on it. Let me play Liberal leader Kevin Falcon on the show last week and get your thoughts. Absolutely not. I w- actually went back and checked, and to the best of what I could see, uh, in the five health authorities plus the Provincial Health Services Authority, so six, uh, we had just over, it looked like about 16 vice presidents that were earning over 100000 a year. Okay, so he says that there were 16 vice presidents under, under the Liberals' watch, and now there are 64. You, you say that's not correct, right? Well, well, this isn't a debate between myself and Mr. Falcon. He's just wrong. These are Falcon facts. Right? He said he <laughs> went back and checked. No, he didn't. There were 64 vice presidents at the health authorities when I became Minister of Health under the Liberals on administration costs, Mike. The yep. share of administration costs, the share of health care budgets has gone down since I've been Minister of Health. We've done better than the Liberals on that measure. But if you don't want that view of it, there's something called the corporate services expense ratio, which independently the Canadian Institute for Health Information does on healthcare systems. It shows we have some of the lowest administrative costs in Canada. And our record is better than it was under the Liberals. Indeed, better than it was under Mr. Falcon when he was Minister of Health, right? So when he okay. he has a record in this regard. So, you know, it's not a debate between myself and Mr. Falcon. Uh, in this case, these are just the facts. He, he's free to make any take any position he wants, but to consistently mislead. He's also misled, as you know, on the amount they get paid, right? And they keep changing the number, right, the way they describe it, because he doesn't want to, again, admit he's wrong. You know, if you behave in politics, and he's a very aggressive politician, fair enough. He likes to insult people, fair enough. You know, people will judge that if they like it or not. But to be consistently wrong in the facts, that's disappointing. Okay, uh, let's go back to your phone call. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Ed in Kamloops. Hi, Ed, go ahead. Uh, yes, I'd like to know the percentage of what... Uh, is spent for administration instead of actual health care. And I do believe anything over 10% would be completely obscene. I'll wait for your answer. Thank you. Okay, we sort of just touched on that, Minister. So what is the breakdown on on, uh, bureaucracy? Go ahead. Well, on administration services, it's 9.9%, which is below uh, what Ed uh, says is the threshold. And uh, it was, I believe, 9.98% when the Liberals left office. So it's gone down in that time. It should be said what we call administration includes often includes things like getting PPE and uh, and uh, cleaning hospitals. And there is a difference between ourselves and the Liberals, I'd say, to Ed, in that regard. Uh, it isn't about senior executives. Uh, we have senior executives then. We have senior executives now. And so they, uh, you know, devalued and contracted work for the people who clean hospitals, right? And that's no longer possible. You can't, in a labor shortage, one thing, expect to hire people for poverty wages to clean operating rooms. And secondly, you should respect that work, which is really important in the healthcare services we deliver. Would you? So there is a difference. There would you be? Between us and them, and you know the difference. It's Bill 29. 
Yeah. Would you be willing to, I'm just looking at a text message I've received from the, from the liberals here this morning, minister, and they say, they wonder, would you be willing to release the names and salaries of every vice president in the healthcare system when Kevin Falcon was the health minister? Because they continue to insist there were only 16 vice presidents back then. So would you be willing to prove them wrong with like the direct, uh, the direct figures? With with great respect, they were in government (laughs) from 2001 to 2017. There were 64 of them in 2017. I'd be happy to release that. Okay, fair enough. Back to the phone calls. Let's go to George in Nanaimo. Hi, George. Go ahead. Yes, good morning. I'd like to talk about uh, some of the unintended consequences of some of the policies that were brought in uh, during the pandemic. Specifically, uh, the minister changed the fee schedule for doctors so they would make the same for a telephone appointment as they would for an in-person visit with the hopes that they would not catch COVID. My doctor looked at that and realized um, if I'm going to be paid the same to talk to somebody on the phone, I no longer need this office anymore. And he closed this practice. Twelve people lost their jobs. His wife and him, who are also a doctor, moved into a clinic. He sits in his bunker all day, and all he does is talk to people on the phone. Okay. So I've lost access to my doctor. It's essentially just dial a nurse now. He's only a voice on the telephone. He eliminated all of his overhead because he got to close his office, and now he just gave him $140,000 raise for him and his wife, and our health care is worse because of it. Okay, Minister, we have two minutes left here. Go ahead. Okay, in March of 2020, we did change what are called the fee codes. Your listeners absolutely right. We did so to maintain our primary care system and just and to maintain our family doctors. We had to do that, right? At that point, a lot of things were being shut down. We needed our doctors still to be available to patients, and we changed the fee codes. We've been working on that because there is a greater role for digital health, for online health, for Zoom health, if you will, or for or for even on-the-phone health. There is a greater role for that. That has some utility. So we're working that through. That's part of our discussions with doctors. Uh, in the first year of that, of course, the system overnight went online, right? either on the phone or online, from about 95% in person to about 30% in person overnight. It was the urgent and primary care centers, some of the walk-in clinics were, were staying open to patients. And, and that's obviously been changing back. Right now, I think it's about 60-40, so 60 in person, 40 uh, online. And, uh, and we're working with doctors to see that reduce more. There will still be a role for online medicine. I think it makes sense for a lot of people because it also has some advantages for patients. But I agree with your listener that we've got to move back more back into in-person appointments, and the doctors of BC agree as well, and that's what we're working to do. Minister, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it, and I certainly appreciate you taking the calls from our listeners today. Thank you. Hey, right out any time. Take care. Eh? All right, let's talk about the police search for the East Van bike slasher now. Who is slashing the tires of these Moby bikes in Vancouver. A lot of people are familiar with this program. It's a very popular program in the city, the Moby Bike Share Program. We've got hundreds of these bikes available to rent and share across the city at stations in in Vancouver. 7,000 members of the Moby Bike Share Program in the city. Why is someone slashing the tires of these Moby bikes? Now, the latest on this one happened at Commercial Street and 20th Avenue there, where there's a Moby bike station. It looks like somebody was not happy 
that this particular Moby bike station had taken up some parking spots there. Decided to get a little payback by slashing the tires of the bikes. Got Peter Ladner standing by. First, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Sarah McDonald. It appears an ongoing source of tension between cyclists and motorists at this site and others across the city has escalated into a police investigation into who's slashing the tires on the bikes stationed here on Commercial Street and 20th Avenue. Anytime I've come here to get a bike, like oftentimes the tires are totally flat. And I didn't realize there was like a connection to it. And then I saw the signs saying that somebody's been slashing tires. This handwritten note left here on Thursday may provide a clue. It was a pretty aggressive letter where they were effectively saying like, uh, too bad, so sad, get a car because I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah, taking a look at some of the notes, the claims of responsibility here for whoever is slashing the tires of these Moby bikes. So people have been complaining stop doing this to the bikes. We need them to get to work. We're using these bikes to get around the neighborhood. Stop damaging them. And then someone posted a sign. So I'm looking at the sign now. It says, too bad, so sad. Us motorists want our parking spots back. Your options are buy a car, buy your own bike, walk, take transit. <laughs> now, does that mean that this was... Uh, a payback from unhappy motorists that are slashing these bike tires. Uh, the police hopefully will catch whoever's doing it. Check in with Peter Ladner now. Ch Peter is the chair of the board of the BC Cycling Coalition. Peter's a former Vancouver City Councillor. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Peter, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Can I get a moment of boasting in here? It yeah. turns out that I was the person who introduced the idea of mobile bikes to Vancouver about 15 years ago when I was a councillor. I had forgotten what wow. somebody told me so. So there. That, that long ago, the right Gee, yeah. Okay, well, that's that's very that's very good history to know, Peter. What, what do you think of this? Someone damaging these bikes? This is, this is ridiculous. Well, I, I wouldn't want to read too much into it. It sounds like a bit somebody's just gone off a little bit and a uh, bit of a nut bar thing here. I don't I don't think it's uh, reflective of any larger trends. But I maybe you know you can you can say that and I can respond. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it, this could be a one-off thing. Hopefully, this is not something that's widespread. But I guess, you know, the, the indication here, at least according to this note that was left, is this is someone who is unhappy that one of these Moby bike stations had taken up some parking spots on the street. Is that is that yeah. the way this... Go ahead. Well, I mean, it does reflect somewhat of the feelings of many motorists that the cyclists are getting an unfair spare share of road space and they're intruding on the freedom to park and drive anywhere I want. So get them out of here. But I, I just think that's, that's a, a fading view by people who are just not informed about the benefits of having cycling in the city. And okay. What, fact, a, go ahead. what about, what about the benefits specifically of this Moby bike share program? And, and as you mentioned, when you were a city councilor, you were, you were advocating for this years ago. Why is it a good thing? Well, it makes it's it makes cycling accessible to more people. You don't have to own a bike to ride one. And now that they've got some e-bikes in that program, you can have your own e-bike for a few cents, a, you know, a, a minute, uh, 45 cents a minute or something. And you can get around. And the other part of it is that it's liberating for cyclists because when I when I go to other cities and use these bikes, uh, these shared bikes, 
you can just drop them off at a, at a rack. You don't have to worry about locking them up. You don't have to worry about them getting stolen. You don't have to worry about coming back to pick it up. So it's, it's a, a more liberating form of cycling in the city than anything else. Right. Let's have a listen to what, the other side of the story here. Now, you'll hear, you hear the voices of a couple of people wondering, well, okay, but these, these parking stations for these bikes have taken up parking spots for motor vehicles, so maybe that's why people are upset. You'll also hear from a, a spokesperson for the city, Lisa Parker, here speaking to Global News. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. It's taking up parking space and it's so limited, so I can see why people are angry. I just moved over to this area and there is no parking. We do recognize that there are some neighborhoods and some more specific locations. We're locating it just puts a little bit more challenge on the on the tensions and the trade-offs around there. Okay, so you see the city saying, yeah, we understand there's some neighborhood tensions about where these things have been cited, where they're located. You hear some people complaining there about a lack of parking. Peter, your thoughts on that? Like, do they... Why do they have to displace parking to set up one of these stations? Uh, they don't always. Uh, sometimes they're yeah. they're on you know plazas and so on, but because yeah. parking is for vehicles and they are vehicles, and you can get ten of them or whatever it is into the space for one car. I mean, let's talk about parking for a minute. People sure. think that there's a divine right for motorists. I am a motorist, so I, I, I understand this. Um, there's a divine right for motorists to park anywhere, anytime, and preferably for free. And all over the city, we have socialism for cars. We give them free parking in most <laughs> residential neighborhoods. And if you were to put your bookshelf out there, your spare lumber or something from your garage, you'd get arrested and it would get taken away. But you put your car out there and that's it's all good. So the city is heavily, other taxpayers, non-driving taxpayers are heavily subsidizing parking for cars so to take one space away here or here and there to, to replace it with 10 cycle bicycles is a wonderful thing in my view and it also brings home the point that the more people who cycle in the city the less the the, the lower the costs are in the city and the more that the drivers benefit so, so you I, I so think, you would you would therefore say that in, in this example where these particular bikes have been vandalized in east van like this particular Moby bike station is taking up, it, lo- it looked like two or, two or three parking spots to put this bike station in there. So obviously, you know, there is an impact on parking availability for vehicles, but you think it's a, it's a good trade-off at the end of the day. Absolutely it is. And uh, the, mm-hmm. like the more people who cycle in the city, the healthier, happier, more affordable our city is going to be. And the lower the costs, because people don't realize that Cars are heavily subsidized. I know people, you know, when I pay my license fees and the fuel tax and all that stuff, you think, boy, they're really gouging me. But in fact, car drivers pay maybe at best a third of the costs of the roads that they use. And the rest in the cities is financed by property taxes, which everybody pays, including cyclists, many of whom are also motorists. So they pay their their motorist share too. So I, I think that Anything we can do to encourage cycling in the city, active transportation, public health, lower injuries and accidents, police costs, all of that stuff is a great thing. And if it costs somebody's favorite parking place to be replaced by some parking for 10 or 12 or 20 bikes, bring it on is all I can say. (laughs) Do you have concerns that this type of, I don't know what you call it, vigilantism or 
property damage, vandalism, slashing tires of these bikes, which I think is a ridiculous thing to do. Like, there's, there's apparently dozens of these bikes have been damaged in this way. Could this potentially threaten the viability of the program? Or like you said, it was hopefully is like a isolated. Your thoughts? I think it's isolated, but it's the pointy end of a, of a spear of, of a lot of antagonism towards cyclists, which uh, I think is real and has to be dealt with. And uh, I think people have to better understand uh, that, that we're shifting now. We're not, that we've come, come through an era that's a, a historical uh, quirk. It's only happened in the last 100, 150 years that the car, the single occupancy vehicle has been ruled the road. And it's no longer possible to have great cities if that's the case. And cities all over the world are realizing that and changing to more active transportation, more transit, and more options for people other than simply driving their cars. And as long as people are resisting that, pushed and and encouraged by a multi-billion dollar car industry marketing campaign, um, we're going to have trouble making that shift. But the shift is inevitable. It's going to come. It's going to be a better Mm -hmm. thing. And every time it's happened, uh, with the exception of a Stanley Park bike lane, every time, every anywhere I know it's happened, people have ended up after the fight being happy with it and realizing the benefits. Peter, thank you for your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Sure, Mike. Thank you. Let's talk about the continuing effort to help victims of the devastating earthquake in Turkey. Now, also, this week marks the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the effort to help refugees heading to safety in Poland. We'll go live to Warsaw here next with Majel Wilson. First, on the earthquake in, in Turkey, workers continue to hope for miracles in the rubble. The hope's fading for any more additional survivors, but you know what? The miracles do happen. Have a listen to this report from NBC News. 248 hours after a catastrophic earthquake shook southern Turkey, the miracles don't stop. This is 17-year-old Elena Olmez, rescued this morning from the rubble of a building in the Turkish city of Kahraman Marash. She's carried to a waiting ambulance. The crowd celebrates with applause. At the local university hospital, Elena smiles as she tells reporters how she survived the 11 days. I'm fine, thank you, she says. I had nothing with me. I just tried to pass the time. For family members, Elena's rescue is an answered prayer. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Majel Wilson. Majel is the CEO, Global Empowerment Mission Europe. She is currently in Poland helping with war refugees there. She just got back from Turkey where she was helping with victims of the earthquake. Very pleased to welcome her. Majel, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You bet. It's great to have you here. Let, let's first of all, let's talk about your work in Turkey. And you've posted some incredible videos. I encourage people to check out your social media because some of the videos that you've done there are just extraordinary of the scenes there. Tell me what that was like for you, because you arrived, you got on the ground in Turkey pretty much very soon after these, these earthquakes hit, right? Yeah, when the first earthquake hit, um, I immediately went to the airport uh, in Warsaw and got on a flight to Istanbul. And I was in the air flying when the second earthquake hit and um, on the ground in Adana that evening. Uh, the the destruction was just unbelievable. There's there's no words to describe the things that, 
that these people are going through right now and still going through. Um, just two hours ago, we had, we saw two more earthquakes in the same area and collapsed buildings and, you know, more people getting stuck, unfortunately. Wow. And what was that like? I mean, you're a, you're a, you're from British Columbia, you're from Victoria, and I applaud mm-hmm. you. I tip my hat to you for the work that you, the work that you're doing there. What was that like, like seeing this devastation up close? It was really difficult. Um, I think that it's something that is going to stick with me for a very long time. Uh, yeah. You know, hearing people from within that rubble and seeing that these were people's homes, is, your brain can't fully grasp, actually, the magnitude of what you're looking at. Yeah, what is the biggest challenge there on the ground right now? Would you say? I would say right now it's it's still in that search and, and recovery phase. Um, I mean, as as you heard in that clip a minute ago, people are somehow still being found alive in this destruction. Um, it's it's a miracle that people are still being found. I think the second biggest challenge is just how they're even going to you know, address the disaster and what their cities look like now. I don't know how they're going to be able to rebuild from from this. You traveled around to some different areas that were affected by Mm -hmm. the earthquake in Turkey. Are some of these areas difficult to access? Yeah, during the first week, it was much more difficult. Um, You know, people were sending semi-trucks in and, and the bulldozers and the cranes were all coming in. And that was the roads, you know, you were you were sitting there for 17 hours sometimes. Um, but the last week, they've, you know, the military and the police there have really changed things up. So these roads can't be blocked for the first responders and stuff. But it's definitely not um, very accessible. Like some of the roads are still only like just a car width, length, or width so the cars can get through. Right. Right. I've, I've taken a look at some of the extraordinary videos that you've done and your group has posted mm-hmm. online and... And it's really incredible to, to see the work and the, the rescue efforts that are going on. But man, it must be frustrating for people if you can, you can literally hear people calling for help. It was almost impossible to get to them in the early stages here. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, it's the most devastating thing that I've ever, I've ever been, been around. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you talk about the sort of the rebuilding effort, I guess that has to, because we're still, right now we're still in rescue mode, recovery mode, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I don't, it's, it's so hard to know what these cities are going to do. Um, I mean, even just still in this recovery phase, because you have roads that are completely shut off and, you know, they're having to climb over with bulldozers and all that. So, yeah. I mean, just even rebuilding their street just so people can, can be saved and, and accessed. And, you know, we ha- we've seen tons of people up in uh, some villages in the mountains that are, you know, 100 kilometers away from, from a city. And, you know, how are those people getting reached, you know? Yeah. Speaking of Majel Wilson, Global Empowerment Mission. Majel is from Victoria, B.C., currently helping uh, people in Europe. She was on the ground in Turkey helping the earthquake victims. Let's talk about your work in Poland now. Mm-hmm. Majel went helping with uh, refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. And this week is a significant week. Of course, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What is the situation on the ground where you are in Poland now with helping people get to safety? On the ground in Poland in the past couple months, the situation has changed so extremely. Um, at the beginning, you know, for the first, I'd say, six to eight months, uh, the refugee crisis in Poland and all of Europe was extreme. Um, I think Poland itself actually 
the government really, really uh, did a good job of, of helping everybody. But then um, people wanted to go home. You know, the, the resources in Europe were kind of running out for them. They, may, they weren't able to find employment. You know, they wanted to get back to their family members who stayed behind. So we've seen, like, I mean, we, we get the border numbers for the crossings, and we see more people going into Ukraine now than, than leaving. Really? People are heading home? Yeah, absolutely. People are yeah. going back. Um, they're wanting to, to, you know, make a life there as, as best as they can. Yeah, well, I mean, if they can do so safely, I guess that's a, that is a good yeah. thing. For, for people who who have fled into Poland here from when the fighting was uh, was worse at the time and a lot of people were in jeopardy what was that like for you on the ground there and helping people what kind of what kind of what did you see up up close there uh, it was really really sad um, we hmm. saw people for initially we were at the border crossings um, you know helping these people we, we got 40,000 people relocated to you know 50 countries in the world. And we got people, uh, you know, long-term solutions, jobs, and everything like that. So we saw a lot of positivity through that. But, it, you know, if you went into those shelters and there's 15,000 people, it was, it was heartbreaking. And these people had nothing. Some of them had literally walked hundreds of kilometers to get to a border, um, you know, carrying a baby on one hip and, you know, their one suitcase. It was, it was devastating. Yeah, and what was it like for for the people in Poland who were there? And I guess you rely on the local Polish people to help help as well, right? What what sort of response did you see on the ground in Poland? Poland was great. Um, everybody here, I think, I think there was kind of an attitude where everybody knew they had to help, or the problem would get bigger. So everybody, the government, locals, everybody came together and was you know just incredible to all the Ukrainians that came over. Um, and I think that they're still, they're still willing to do that. I think everybody here, especially with the cold weather and the one year anniversary is bracing themselves for another refugee crisis here in Poland. Um, but I, I think the attitude is still quite positive. Majel, you've been on the, the front lines and the front row of these in- incredible heartbreaking and tragic events with the refugees helping them in Poland. And, and of course you just got back from Turkey helping people in the mm-hmm. earthquake zone. Can you tell me a little bit about, like, how can people help? Like, can you tell me a little bit about Global Empowerment Mission? Like, maybe people can help out? Yeah, yeah so um, the best way to always help any, any group that's on the ground is through, uh, you know, financial donations. That allows us to work the fastest and the quickest. Um, for In Ukraine, for example, um, you know, we're, we're purchasing aid locally. We're supporting local economies. We're you know, we're letting people come back to work who hadn't been able to go back to a job. Um, so that, you know, money just allows us to work faster and most efficiently. But I think also another way that people can help um, is just spreading awareness, not letting this disaster fatigue set in and just, you know, letting letting everybody know that you're still thinking about them. I know um, we get tired hearing about the you know, the, the war and the earthquakes, and it's, it's devastating, it's heartbreaking, but keeping that awareness going allows that support to continue into the phases where it's absolutely needed most. Majel, congratulations on the work you're doing there. I think it's amazing uh, you. everything you're, you're, in, you're accomplishing there and encourage people to check out the website for Global Empowerment Mission. Thank you for taking the time thank today. You. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.